This episode of U-Turn is sponsored by Electric Pulp. Electric Pulp is a full-service digital agency specializing in smart, modern solutions for web and mobile. I'll tell you more about them later in the podcast. Well, welcome to U-Turn. This episode, I'm talking with Sam Means. From 2002 to 2008, Sam was one half of the band The Format with Nate Roos, who's now the band Fun and uh, doing his own solo thing. After that, Sam started a company called uh, Hello Merch, which seven years later, he still runs today from Phoenix, Arizona. So, Sam, if uh, somebody was to walk up to you on the street and say, this company, Hello Merch, what do you do exactly? What would you tell them? Um, well, it's kind of turned into a couple different things now. But, yeah, it started as like a just a band merchandise company. Uh, when the format was still around, we were in some bad merch deals. So we decided that we were going to start our own and just sort of deal with everything ourselves. So we hired our friend to run it while we were on tour. And then we had a friend, this guy, Joe, who, uh, was just learning how to do uh, screen printing. He had worked at a screen printing shop and he was starting to pick it up a little bit. So we had actually kind of started there with the format and we did that for about probably three or four years. Um, and it was going so well that when we would tour with bands, they would, they would kind of ask like, who's doing your merch? What's going on? And and we would explain to them that it was us and they wanted to be a part of it too. But, uh, we just never really expanded it because we just felt like, they wouldn't get the attention that they deserve. Like we could barely, it was going well for us, but we were about all we could manage from kind of from the road and with the one friend that we had working there. So, uh, when the band broke up, that was, I just had nothing else to do. So I decided I would take that and expand it into, uh, something with other bands. So I just contacted some friends and started off with, uh, just this guy, Jay Brannon, that, um, our, the formats manager at the time had just started managing him. And we started working with Steel Train and a couple other bands that we were friends, this band that I was a part of called Destry for a little bit. So it all, it all just sort of started there. And that's primarily what it is today. It's just grown from that point of those first few bands into about 120, um, so we do online stores for bands and we, uh, through Joe, my friend Joe, who's still doing all the screen printing stuff today, he, he does all the printing and we, we also supply t-shirts and stuff for bands on the road. So that's half of it. And that's a, that's a pretty big chunk of it. And then a couple of years ago, we, we actually started a clothing company and that's been around, I guess, two or three years now. And we call that Hello Apparel, keeping it in the Hello family. And that is a clothing company that has turned into, uh, ac- totally accidentally into a company that is heavily geared towards y- uh, younger moms and their, and their children. So that was kind of unexpected, but it made sense for us at the time because we had, you know, we were younger parents with a brand new child. So it was really easy for us to jump into that world. So. That's what it is. Long, long-winded answer. <laughs> well, that's all right, though. And, and I, I'm really looking forward to digging into that, probably in more detail than, than you want to, but you're being a good sport so far, so I appreciate that. And actually, I have to tell you, I just bought a Hello Apparel shirt for my little niece. Um, they're for sale in, right here in Minneapolis at a, a boutique called Pacifier. 
and it was a cool shirt. <laughs> oh, cool. That's awesome. That That's cool that you got it at, at an actual store. Yeah. It's uh, the, I am not tired shirt. And uh, nice. now that she's uh, entering the terrible twos phase, it's, it's totally fitting. It really is. So that's, that's awesome. That's really cool. And again, I promise we'll circle back to that. But um, I think one thing that I, th- I think will be helpful for people listening is to kind of dig into where my guests come from and kind of their, their past and their history. So sure. I thought maybe we'd start there and like, did you grow up in Phoenix? I did. Yeah. I was born in Phoenix and I've lived here my whole life. Okay. So born and raised in Phoenix. And then what did your parents do? Cause you're obviously entrepreneurial. You've done multiple things that kind of break off, do your own thing, whatever. And I think often that runs in the family. Is that true in your case? Yeah, it is actually. My dad, um, I don't remember exactly what year they moved here, but my dad was always into business and stuff like that. He went to school for it and he worked, they lived in California before they moved out here um with my older sister and i think it was sometime in the 70s i don't know but my grandpa was like a a traveling salesman i guess like a very old school kind of you know living in hotel room kind of a as you would imagine like a movie 50s 60s 70s (laughs) what did he sell old school salesman would be I think he sold, I mean, like very, um, very much like that character you would expect from some, some movie or something. He's kind of sold everything. He just would see what was going on and, uh, you know, pick up on these trends or hear about something. And I don't know, it was really actually pretty, pretty interesting. And he was, he was good at it and he was really passionate about it, but I may be totally wrong here, but I think it was something like, air conditioning filters or something to do with air conditioning, air conditioning filters, maybe <laughs> interesting. He was why he initially came out here and then someone tipped him off on pest control. Cause it's the desert and there's just bugs everywhere. And Phoenix is still, it's been around for a while, but as like a, a sprawling suburban community, it's relatively new. Um, you know, like my house is probably one of the oldest houses around, this area and it was built in like the twenties, which was still a long time ago, but you know, you could go to New York and find a house that was built like in the 1800s or something, or even before that probably. So, um, it was, it was a pretty new territory and there was lots of opportunities. I think he told my dad that he should move out here. And I, I guess that's what ended up happening. I I probably should go back and get this, the story again. I've heard like bits and pieces over the years and probably not as much as I should as an adult. So I'm probably remembering some of it wrong, but you definitely should. Cause I think it's, it's interesting to hear that when you are an adult, you know, things that maybe you just kind of assumed as a kid, but then you dig into it. Yeah. It's weird. You pick up all these weird little things as a kid and you think, you know, what's going on and you just, I think you just create something, you know, from bits and, and then you hear later, you bring it up, you know, when you're with your parents or something, you say something like that's not what happened. <laughs> so that's probably what's going to happen with this story if they ever hear this. But Oh, it probably will. Yeah, but so they ended up moving out here and uh my dad just started a pest control company like totally completely out of the blue from that sort of tip off from my grandpa. And it was just like a one man show. He had a truck and was doing everything himself and over the course of a year like 25 years or something my whole entire childhood he had this company. And, uh, his, he had like a really cool building, which he still, he still has in downtown Phoenix that at the time was a total disaster, but he renovated it and 
did all this really cool stuff to it. And it just turned into this incredibly beautiful property that now sits right in the middle of a park for ASU. So he really lucked out and has this incredible building now that now that they're older and they have a you know a nice little place they, act, they live there actually which is pretty awesome so really it's like this cool little loft downtown that they built for themselves and then they still work out of the bottom um he sold the pest control company years ago and but at the same time he was doing um you have to be certified to be a pest control technician so he was doing the the certification training and things like that. And then he ended up starting a school specifically for that field. And so now he, he gives the tests in various States around the country, um, through college courses and programs and stuff like that. So they do, you know, re- remote testing through college, college, um, testing centers and things like that. So he was, yeah, I mean, he was a businessman from the get go. And I picked up a lot of that, all of it, actually, I should say, from him. That's where that came from. Wow. Uh, clearly a serial entrepreneur because he wasn't content to just do the one thing. He had to do something else. Yeah, and it's good. I think that's smart. I mean, that's that's kind of my whole philosophy at this point is to try to do, I don't, you know, I don't, I have, I have this friend that we always make fun of because he has so much stuff going on. He's mellowed out a little bit lately, but back in the day, he would just have like 10,000 things happening and he's really smart. And if he would have just stuck with a couple of them, he probably would be like a zillionaire right now, but <laughs> he just had so much going on. He couldn't focus on anything. So, but there is some, a little bit of uh genius behind that method. I think if you can take on, you know, just enough to stay interested in each thing that you're doing. And then if one thing sort of falls back this year, then you have the other one to fall back on and things like that. So I don't know. I think it's smart to kind of diversify your life a little bit if it's, if it's possible. Yeah. It's kind of like planting seeds. I mean, you see what, what sprouts basically. Yeah. I mean, you never really know what's going to happen. Things dip all the time, you know, so it's, it's good to have something else to put focus on, but you don't ever want to have too much or else then you can't really, you end up like my friend Jarvis. (laughs) I'm calling out right now. Oh, for, for sure. Well, I might make you tweet out reference this episode once I get it posted and then hopefully you'll see it. If he follows you on Twitter, that is. And I'll I'll make him hear it. Okay, good, good. So clearly you've got an entrepreneurial family. You're following your dad's footsteps a little bit now, but that wasn't really the path you were on. I mean, you were, I'm guessing pretty into music from a young age. Yeah, I got super into it. That was also from my dad. It started, um, I started really getting into music. My, his family lives in Oklahoma. They're all, he's from Oklahoma. And so, um, my mom didn't really like to travel too much. So, and my dad loved to drive, especially long distances. He just like loved taking road trips. He still does. Like if he, he flies a lot more than he used to, but, um, but any, any chance he gets, he just hops in the car and drives. So we would go, I would go with him on these road trips to Oklahoma to visit our family out there. And before we would go, we would run up to the store and just buy some tapes to listen to. You'd buy like, you know, six or eight tapes. And we would just listen to those the whole time. So it's like a 16 hour drive. You know, we would listen to like a, the Jim Croce tape and the Beach Boys tape and the Beatles tape and the Bob Dylan tape. And I would just like, just, you know, they was just getting hammered into my brain. And how old were you when this was happening? I was probably like 
I mean, I think we did that a lot throughout my childhood, but when I really start remembering it, I think I was probably like eight or nine. And I think by the time I turned 10, I started getting kind of interested in playing guitar. And, uh, he bought me, I I still remember specifically, I actually just tried to go Google this to figure out if I could find the publishing date to know exactly when I like the year I started playing guitar. Cause I don't, it's a little fuzzy. I have kind of a bad memory. I, as far as actual facts, I just have pictures in my brain. Sure. So I remember walking into the mall and in the music store and my dad buying me this Beatles, like easy Beatles guitar book, which I still have. It's actually right behind me. It's kind of like my prized possession, but, uh, he bought me this book and I would just sit down. He had this, another thing I still have that I totally stole from him was this guitar. He had this old Martin 018. It's like a small body orchestra guitar, acoustic guitar. It's like a, it's basically full size, but the body's small and the neck's a little bit smaller. So it's easy for me to play easier for me to start playing, I guess I should say, cause it wasn't like a big full body right. Gibson. Yeah, which is really hard. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I would just, I would, I would always stay up super late and I would just sit there and go through every single page and play as far as I could get through each one and then go from the start to the end of the book and then go to sleep and wake up and <laughs> do it all again. I, Rinse yeah, do it again every day. So I just did that for, I mean, I still, I was, I did that yesterday with the exact same book. It's kind of awesome that I still have managed to keep it, but I just love doing that, just going through and you know, starting from the top and just seeing how far you can get before you get sick of it. So you're completely self-taught when it comes to guitar, at least. Yeah. And then my, my dad played guitar a little bit. Um, I don't really remember him ever. He probably showed me like some chords and stuff, but, uh, I remember, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I barely remember him playing guitar. Like, I think I have one memory of him singing a Bob Dylan song or something on the bed before he was going to sleep or something. But my uncles, I have a couple uncles that are really into music a lot. Uh, one of them is my uncle Kelly, who I jokingly refer to as my manager because he's, we're always talking to each other and he's really into the, um, the business music business side of things and all the happenings that are going on with this stuff I have going on ever since the format days, like he would call me and check in and see how tours are going and what new things are on coming up and stuff like that. But, um, he, he definitely taught me some stuff that I remember, you know, like a really basic blues scale, which is still kind of like the only one I know, but (laughs) it's kind of all you need. I've never been, he was like a lead guy and I was never like a lead guitar guy. So he would, he would, um, just have me. I mean, he's, I think he still does this with like my cousins and all these younger kids that are popping up in my family, but, uh, he would just have me play this rhythm over and over again, like just play these chords. And then he would just do his little, his little shredding (laughs) session. (laughs) Oh, I'm totally the same way. I I can't play lead for anything. It's terrible, but I'm all about the rhythm. Yeah. uh, I mean, I try, like I've done it. I've definitely done it a few times, like in the, in the format. The compromise. You got a nice little solo there. That's actually a keyboard solo. Oh, is it really? <laughs> yeah, it's just like going through it. Oh, yeah, it is. Now that I think about it, it's got that kind of wah-wah thing going on to it. Yeah, yeah. there's there's some. there, And they're always like, yeah, they're embarrassed. I was, anytime I had to do a solo, I was so into it because I just felt like I never get to do this. It's a, just a different thing. But then it's so bad. Like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. 
So you got this musical family clearly. And and actually I can totally relate to the tapes thing. Cause I, I remember traveling with my dad in the car too. And it was that era. I mean, it was a little more modern stuff. Like we were really into the green day album dookie for some reason, but you yeah, loved it so, too, which was cool. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was all later for me. Like my cousin got into green day and I remember he, it was a CD and he had the CD and it was like, you gotta listen to dookie. It's so crazy. <laughs> so you're surrounded by music. And, and then at some point you meet Nate Roos. And when was yeah. that? That was in, um, that was right. I think the day after or a couple days after Christmas in like 1996. And I remember that because, uh, or maybe it was, no, it's actually a few days before Christmas. It was a, at a Weezer show. You just randomly Uh, met at a show. Sort of. I had this, the friend, the same friend that I was talking about, not the one that is a crazy person, but the one that ran the format, uh, merch store. I was my friend, Nate Burry. He, uh, he was my neighbor. He was like the first kid my age to move into my neighborhood and on my street, like across the street from me before that. I just had some little kind of younger kids that I was hanging out with. Cause there's no one else. And they were cool too. Not to discount who they are, but sure. It was, it, I was very excited to have someone that was um, a lot closer to my age move in. So, um, he went to school with Nate and, I was, this is super dorky, but I was running this Weezer fan club website from like 14 to like maybe 18. So, <laughs> so wait, so even back then you were doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. Basically. And I, I actually just went back. I have this, this friend, Paul, who does a lot of our, um, our website stuff for Hello Merch and like all the technical stuff that I can't do. And I was telling him about my old Weezer site and I went back and found it on that. The Wayback Machine? Yeah, the Wayback yes. Machine. Yes. Oh, that's so awesome. And he was kind of impressed. And I, and I was actually pretty impressed because it was intense. Like there, I had, I mean, just full detail. I had every, you know, like every page, every kind of possibility. It was just completely, um, decked out. How'd like you cool. build that? Was it like a page builder type of thing, like on GeoCities or one of those? No, I like, I, t- I taught myself how to do it. I mean, it was like early, early HTML. So you were doing so HTML too. Cool. Yeah. I, I did the same thing. I had an Apple fan site when I was in like seventh grade and I did the same thing. Yeah. I mean, there's the stuff that you couldn't, you know, maybe there's the thing you couldn't figure out and you'd go find the, the, the page somewhere that had the code. I just go copy the, it for like the form to fill out. Yeah. Like the poll, like the Weezer poll. Like I didn't maybe know how to do a poll. And so I would go find somebody that had a free code somewhere. But yeah, all the basic stuff I was just throwing together and I was, it was, it got pretty crazy. Like I was doing custom domain names for like email addresses, like hosting email accounts. It got pretty nuts towards the end of it, which I had totally forgot about that until I saw the way back thing. But, um, so anyway, I was doing that and it was, I knew the girls that ran the fan club for Weezer because I sort of stalked them online and I emailed them at one point and I was like, Hey, can I be like the official fan club website? And they agreed and let me do that. Um, because you know, they're probably just like, yeah, whatever. And it's 1996, right? So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Cool. But they were really, they were so nice. Like they, they, um, they would always send me, you know, like little news before any, any time they had, they found out anything that was, that was awesome. That hadn't, hit the streets yet. Like they would let me know if it well, was are a pretty obsessive fan base. So I assume that that was, that coincided well. So you're posting this stuff and I'm sure you're getting decent audience. 
Yeah. So people knew about it and Nate knew about it. Like he followed it for the news and like the information. He had no idea that it was somebody that lived like six blocks from him that was running this. And so they were, they were at school one day, Nate and my other friend, Nate Burry. And I think it just, you know, he was talking, it came up in conversation or something. And then my friend Burry was just like, Oh, that's my neighbor does that. And he's like, what? You know, kind of like freaked out. And he's like, I got to meet him. Like, we got to talk about Weezer. So we met at the Weezer show that was coming. I, th- I guess that's probably how it came up. Cause there was a Weezer show that we all had tickets to. And it was probably the Pinkerton tour that I'm guessing if it was 96. It, yeah, it was, it was like right after it came out. Um, I don't think I've ever read that story before. Has that, has that been put that out there on the internet? <laughs> Cause definitely not in this much detail. Okay. Wow. This is, <laughs> it's a good story. Yeah. It's yeah. There's a lot of like pretty weird stories that, that haven't gotten out there, but, um, yeah. So we just met, like, I remember just very briefly meeting him there that night, but then I found out, I started asking around about him, like what was going on. And I found out that, cause I was in really starting to get into music even more at that point, like the idea of having a band, I was like, you know, 16, just thinking like, I got to get something going. I tried to do some bands with a couple of those other guys that I've referenced a couple of times already. Um, we had some little stupid bands that, you know, like living room bands. Um, but I had heard that they had recorded that Nate was in a band with this other kid, Nick and this guy, Mike, and they had recorded a song, which I thought was totally nuts. Like I couldn't believe that they actually recorded something, you know, like on a four track, like it sounded so terrible, but to me it sounded great. So I, I'm not even really sure how it happened, but I ended up being in the band. Like somebody quit or something happened. Like some, somebody quit and like Nick moved to drums from guitar. Was this never going to score? Or was this uh, before? Yeah, that, that? wasn't, yeah, that was never going to score. So they, that had like just started like a couple weeks or, you know, maybe a month. I don't even think it was that, that long. And then, um, yeah, I think what happened was just some guy quit and Nick moved to drums. And so they needed a guitar player. So, you know, somebody was like, Oh, that dude, Sam that you met plays guitar. So I, so I joined and that's how, that's how it all started. I think I actually have an MP3 or two of never going to score some random internet thing or something from years ago. And from what I remember, it's like, it's kind of like newfound glory drive through records, pop punk sort of kind of, was that, is that accurate or? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, we were trying, we knew those people that run that label drive through and we wanted, I mean, we were desperately in that band, desperately trying to be on drive through. That oh, was wow. Like, okay. Well, there we go. I yeah, guess I hit the nail like on the head there. The thing, you know, it's like everybody loved Blink-182 in 1996. If you were like into pop punk bands and stuff like that. So, um, I think all of us were emulating that to some degree. And then newfound, I remember when newfound glory came along, I don't, they weren't around when we first started. So I think it was mostly like, Blink-182 was the band. Yeah, probably. Like that. Yeah. Because I, yeah, I, yeah. Because I remember being in California for, like, a drive through thing. Like, they used to do stuff. Like, they'd have you come out and do a little showcase thing and then tell you that you sucked. You needed to go back and work on it some more. Was this uh, actually Stephanie and Richard? Or was it their yeah, people at that time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was them. We used to, like, stay at their house. and Oh, wow. Everybody's got that story. Or a lot of, a lot of people have that story. But, yeah, we used to go there and... And, um, 
you know, yeah, we'd go there, we'd stay at their house, we'd play some songs for them. And, uh, it never happened. Uh, they never really thought we were good enough to get that going, which in hindsight, I'm very happy for, um, ended up working out in the end that we didn't get signed to drive through. But, uh, yeah, that's, that was it. I mean, we were going for it. Like we got to California and play shows. We did a little bit of touring with, uh, that band Midtown. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and God, stereo. I wish I could hate you for the rest of my life. Yeah. Like we really loved them. We met them through drive through and, and then this band, the stereo, we were huge fans of this band called the impossibles and they started, uh, the impossibles broke up and the guy Rory and then this guy, Jamie, Jamie from stereo. Yep. Yep. Yeah, he yeah, was stereo an, yeah. awesome. Yeah, so he was an Animal Chin, and I was a huge Animal Chin fan, and they somehow met and joined forces and created Stereo, and they were like the... That's when Field by Ramen came out, and like that started getting really cool. And the first Jimmy World EP and all that stuff. God, it's um, amazing how all this stuff crosses over. I didn't realize there were so many connections, but it does make sense. Uh, is um, yeah. Jimmy from Jimmy World, is he from Arizona? Yeah, he's from, they're all from Mesa. Oh, okay. were, so yeah, we we didn't know them at that time, but we had seen Jimmy. I mean, they were, that was like the post pop punk thing was, you know, like Jimmy world and the get up kids. That was our new thing. Like that's what we moved on to. So we, after never going to score broke up, we started this other band called this past year. And that was like, okay, now we're going to be like Jimmy world and the get up kids. And like these other bands that are starting to get a little bit more mature. And there aren't songs about people from say by the bell. Like we're talking about <laughs> life and it's a little harder and it's a little cooler. Right. Um, right. And we're all going to like buy these stupid black turtlenecks and like dye our hair black and be cool. <laughs> so we did that and that didn't last for very long, but that was the next band with Nate after. And we re that band just recorded like five songs. They, I don't even think it was ever officially released. I think we just did like a, I, mean, I think we burned like 50 or a hundred CDs or something and sold them at a show. But yeah, that was, that was the next move. And then in that, in that band, we, Nate and I started to kind of branch off because we weren't really, we weren't really writing together and never going to score, which is, it was just like somebody would have an idea and then you kind of throw it together, you know, and there was this dude that played bass and he was, he was pretty awesome. He was good, just good at like putting pop punk songs together. That was kind of his thing. So we never really wrote together until this past year started and we would, we would branch off and we started getting over the get up kids, hard rock thing. And we started getting into like kind of on the side, we were getting into like third eye blind <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like the cure. And I don't know, just a, definitely like softer, more thought out pop rock stuff. And we were, so we would branch off and like at night we'd go drive around in his car, just the two of us. And we'd write these songs that we sort of just wanted to keep for ourselves kind of, but then we ended up recording a few of those. And, um, that's how the whole, that's how I guess that we found, we, we found out that we could, you know, write together. We were a pretty good little team. Was that when you did the EP for Western Tread? No, that came at, that came after. So that, that band broke up kind of in a weird way. Like, I don't think no one was really getting along very well. Um, I don't even know why, but something out, it was just like a bad, everyone was just like sick of each other. Like no one felt like we were getting a, 
a little older and like maybe people need to start going to college here pretty soon and no one's taking this seriously, you know, that kind of a thing. So I think it just, that broke the band up. And then I didn't talk to Nate for a while. It seems like it was a pretty long time, but it was probably only like a month or something. But I, I still wanted to do stuff cause I was really into it. And so I booked some studio time with this guy that had a really cool analog studio, um, in Mesa. And I, I paid him to do five songs and, uh, I went down there just by myself, like, Hey dude, I don't have a band, but I have these songs. I'm going to start, I'm just going to start something and then hopefully assemble a band as we, as we go along. And, um, was that Bob Hogue? Yeah, it was Bob Hogue. Okay. So, and then at some point, I had, I'd given Nate some demo or I'd given one of the guys a, a demo of the song that I'd recorded on this little stupid four track that I have, you know, like one of those Tascam little blue four track things. And it was the first single, which ended up being a format song. And it was just a, like a six minute version of, of that <laughs> with like keyboard drums, like from this just like Kmart keyboard. It's like tapping out the drums and it just was really bad, but it was the early version of that. And did you start with the, uh, that, you know, opening snare hit thing even back then? Yeah. Cause I just, I needed something that I needed like a count in. Oh, so to kick it off. Sure. Boom, yeah, so, boom, Cause it was, yeah. So it was just me. So I started just like, okay, after a couple beats, I'll come in with the little guitar riff thing and then do this. Uh, so Nate had that in his car and I guess he'd written, the lyrics and the melody to it. And I didn't, we weren't, when we weren't talking. And so he finally called me up and he's like, Hey dude, sorry. I know we're like kind of hate each other right now, but that song that you did, I got it from Nick and it was in my car and I listened to it. And then this, these lyrics and this melody just like popped in my head. Like, I think we need to record it. I think it's going to be really good. Um, so I'm like, oh, okay, well that's funny. Cause I have the studio time booked with Bob already um, why don't you just come down and we'll do that? You know? So that's what happened. He came down and we recorded those five songs ended up being the EP. And who were you planning on having sing before you got this, uh, you know, kind of agreement with Nate? I had no idea. I had like no plan, like literally no plan. I didn't, I didn't know it was the, I had only, tr- I had only begun to track one song and it was, it was all instrumental. It was, um, what turned into the song. I don't even know what it's really called. I always forget. Cause we called it sore thumb. I don't know if that was a song that was the actual, is that what it's called? <laughs> so uh sore thumb is on interventions. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. So, we had, okay. we, had, we had different, like throughout the format we used like working titles. Sure. For, yeah. We just kept calling them that even though they had official names. Um, yeah. Sore thumb. So that's, I started with sore thumb and I just had that, you know, like the drums and the guitar part. And I was just like at a complete, after that, I was like, I don't know what to do now. Cause I'd never really, I definitely never, you know, I never sang at all at that point. So it was, I, I knew I wasn't going to do it. Um, but I had no plan. Okay. So you just, man, it's amazing that it kind of all came together like that. How many random coincidences? It was, it was pretty, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that in my life that's happened where I, I look back on it now and I'm just like, that was that was nuts. 
Those are like totally fate. Like, so yeah, so many, everything, you know, I was just telling my friend Nate Burry the other day that I'm like, it's so funny how many things have happened in my life because I decided to walk over to your door when you drove up and be like, Hey, I live across the street. You want to be friends? You know, like a total dorky six-year-old or whatever old I was. Right. Um, but so many things have happened because of that, because of like people that he knew, you know, ended up meeting Nate and blah, blah, blah and all that stuff. So it's yeah, crazy. That is pretty crazy. And I, I will always remember the name Bob Hogue because I, I met you guys at a show in Minneapolis in like, I don't know, 2004 or something. And yeah. Nate said something like, Oh yeah, we recorded this Bob Hogue. And I said, Bob Hope, what? And it's like, no, 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 Bob Hogue. Oh, oh okay. yeah. That makes, yeah. that makes more sense now. And I, I actually didn't realize till I just looked him up now that uh, he was in Pollen, which is a band that I saw open for, somebody i don't even remember i was in high school or something and they were they were really cool and they were on i think fueled by ramen also yeah i think I they think. were even like one of the first bands maybe on fueled by ramen they, yeah yeah again i i didn't realize all these connections existed this is all coming together and it's it's uh, pretty yeah. cool so you guys you record these songs with bob you've got this ep and then things start happening pretty quickly uh as far as like getting some label attention i think right yeah we th- we recorded, yeah, we did the EP and we started just taking it to the record stores. You know, we would just take like 10 at a time down to each one and be like, Hey, do you guys want to sell this? And it started selling really well. And it's so well that it was, um, it would show up in like the zine, like Zia, this record store here called Zia, they had a Zia zine that would come out and they would have the charts for all their stores. And we would, started ending up on that. And so people would see that. And then, you know, that's, I think that's where a lot of people were at the time, at least I was like, I'd check it out and be like, what new music don't I know about that? I haven't heard about yet. Cause I'm, you know, barely using the internet at this point, except for to develop super intricate Weezer websites. Exactly. Yes. But there wasn't a lot of it. Yeah. But there wasn't a lot of, there really wasn't a lot that, you know, it's, not anywhere like it is now, no, but it was so much harder, like having to search Yahoo and or go through their directory of stuff. And yeah, it wasn't, yeah, I mean, it was like super, if you wanted to find like cool bands, it was pretty limited at that point. But, um, yeah, so j- just all these little things, weird things started happening like that. We were selling a bunch of CDs and then we did some shows and people just were super into it. Cause our other bands, even though they were kind of lame, we did pretty well locally. So I think, people were just maybe a little excited that we finally had like, they liked coming to our shows, but our music sucked. Like they liked us. So I think they were a little excited that, Oh, we like these guys. And this new band is actually not that bad. So it started, you know, the shows really quickly started getting kind of big for, uh, you know, for like a local show. Um, and then what really made things weird is, uh, this guy had a website called the scout, um, right around, you know, like 2000, 2001, whenever that was. And it was like a, it was like, I mean, that's what it was. I guess it was like a scout, like a tip sheet. And a lot of A&R guys, I guess, just like bookmarked it and would check it out every once in a while for new music that this kid was putting up there. Um, so we just started getting emails. Like I, we had, a, obviously we had a really killer website cause I was a pro. At that. Oh, an HTML pro for sure. Yeah. So we had like a super cool website and all that stuff. Was this and, the one uh, with the orange background? Yeah. I think that was the first one. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I remember that. Um, yeah. I had like tons of awesome image mapping and like, yes, it did. It was, you could click on different parts for the links. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was great. Um, 
so we started, we started getting contacted by labels and like managers. And it was so weird. Like he, at that point I had, I think I had an apartment in Tempe and Nate would stay over at my house all the time. And it was just like, we would play halo all night and then go to sleep, you know, stay up all night, fall asleep, watching the NASA channel and then wake up, be like, he would wake me up and be like, dude, we got another email. This time it's from this person in this place. And it's insane. Like what's going on? It's like every day, it was just a new, a new thing for a couple of weeks. Um, and really quickly we had, um, Charlie and, uh, this guy, Charlie Levy, who was a concert promoter and Jim Atkins from Jimmy world, they were started, they decided to start a label. So they contacted us and they're like, Hey, we really like this. We want to, you know, like how many do you have left? We want to repress it under our label. And, um, we were super psyched cause we loved both of them. Like we, you know, we'd never met Jim until then, but we'd seen him so many times. We were just such huge fans of what he did. And then Charlie is just like this, just amazing staple in the music, local music scene here. So it's made the most sense. And it was a really, you know, it was just sort of like a one-off thing. And, um, and then right after that, we, we started getting some radio play on the major rock station in Phoenix. And it was doing really super well. It was really crazy. Um, and yeah, from there, like label, like, you know, bigger labels, like major labels started checking out, seeing this stuff on this Arizona chart. Like who are these dudes that no one's ever heard of? Why are they charting so high on this local radio station? What's going on? Uh, so we got contact, started getting contacted by majors at that point and did a couple showcases, had some people, you know, come to our shows and check us out. But at that point we didn't have a band cause it's just the two of us. So we'd played a couple acoustic shows and threw together a band for this, for when Electra was going to be coming out to see us. We just put this band together real quick of a couple friends, like some people we had played with before and some new people we, we knew. And it was like really our first show probably as, or, you know, at least the first couple shows as an actual full live band. And that was it. We got signed. We, the, we went out to California and played one more show for the, the woman that was running Electra at the time. And, uh, then we got a deal and, and you were like 18 or something at the time. I, I think, think, I think eight was Nate. Uh, Nate was 18. I think I was 20 or like just about to turn 20. He's so really years. young, pretty, pretty young and inexperienced when it comes to like label stuff and all that. I yeah. I, yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we had, we had some help. Um, this woman started managing us, and she was really great. And then she got us a lawyer or we got a lawyer through, through Charlie at Western tread, who's still my kind of music lawyer guy to this day, which is, and Nate's. Um, and he, you know, when, once things started getting kind of serious, we, we started assembling a crew cause we didn't, we were pretty savvy in the music world just because we were at, probably anybody that was into punk rock and stuff just had this, um, you know, you just wanted to be careful. Like you just knew major labels are evil and you want to make sure you're not going to get screwed somehow, which you can't do. Like it's impossible to make sure that doesn't happen really. But, um, 
we were pretty savvy, but we definitely knew that we needed some people. So by, by that time we had some really great people looking out for us and it wasn't as scary as it, as it could have been. Cause that's pretty impressive that you did that actually at that age to, to have the savvy to, to know that you needed help, professional help. I don't know that a lot of people do that. Yeah. I mean, I had taken like a music business class the one year that I went to to community college and <laughs> well, that's actually a quick diversion. I was going to ask about that. So you basically decided college wasn't for you. Did your parents, uh, feel okay about that? I mean, were you getting pressure from them at all to kind of find a career path or did they see how you felt about music and that you were making things happen and that it didn't matter? No, they, um, I don't know. Like when I, I think when I was like 18, I sort of got kicked out of my house <laughs> from but then like invited back pretty quickly it, it was kind of like a you know trying to scare you straight kind of thing yeah that, probably that but, then I was, but then i was like i'm not going back and i never went back so i was too proud at that point i i lived in i actually lived in my van for a little bit uh, like the the this past year tour van that i bought from my uncle um so they they've always been super cool about you know, doing whatever you want to do. Like my dad was never like, you have to do pest control or anything like that. But, um, but I think at that time when I was like 18, I, so I had a path, you know, I was starting to develop this path that I want to be doing something in music. And I don't, I started seeing all my friends or a lot of my friends getting normal jobs and getting sucked into it and not being able to do a lot of the stuff that you you know, kind of need to do to learn and play shows and practice. And, you know, I don't know, just all this, when you're stupid and you're a kid, there's like, everything is so super serious, but right. Of course I started, I started like friends that I, you know, we had played local shows with and it's like, Oh, where's, what's his face. And it's like, Oh, he works at discover card. Now he's so busy. You know, it's just that kind of stupid stuff. Like everyone was getting telemarketing, telemarketing jobs and like working for credit card company centers and stuff like that. And I just didn't want to get a regular job. I just couldn't do it. It wasn't in my, it just wasn't in me at all. Like I just knew that I wouldn't be able to do it. And if I somehow got sucked into it, it was going to affect my, my master plan, which I was still very much trying to figure out what it was, but I just knew it was something. And something musical. Uh, probably. Yeah. Just something in music. So I could just learn how to do I just wanted to learn how to do as much as I could. You know, I was really into the business side of it. I was really into even then, like, like a merch mogul and never going to score. Like I was like on top of it for sure. So like all, all those little, all those little aspects that go around being in a band and I was, I was pretty interested in it and I was always sort of like the, you know, the manager. And then when we got managers, I was like the, the day-to-day manager, <laughs> like the contact and the one who's yeah, keeping an eye on stuff on the road. Definitely. And... Definitely the contact for sure. Yeah. Oh, um, I, that's interesting that it started so young, but you just always seem driven towards that direction. Yeah. And then it ended up being, you know, it was cool too, because during that time, the whole time I was in both of those bands, pretty much, I started working at a concert venue in Mesa, um, and so that was great. I mean, cause that was like, that was a regular job. I was getting paid. I wasn't getting paid it very much at all, but I was getting paid enough that I could at least afford a little apartment, you know, like 400 square foot studio apartment, like 
the ghetto of Mesa. And, um, and, you know, I was, I kind of had maybe a little bit more of a, of a opportunity to play some shows because I worked there and I could annoy people enough that they would put us on the Mr. T experience show or something like that. So that was really cool too, because I learned so much about touring and how real that life is <laughs> like how, how just dirty and gnarly and tiring and grueling touring is. And, um, so that was a huge, that was to me, that was working at that venue. And then later I ended up actually starting a, a concert promotion company with a couple of friends that worked there as well. And that to me, that was college, <laughs> you know, that was like a good four years of, of doing that. That was my, my apprentice, apprenticeship, uh, apprenticeship. Kind of like a boot camp in the music industry as far as the touring side. Yeah. Goes. I mean, I just, I just learned so much doing all that, that, that really, that really built the foundation of at least the, on the business end of, you know, what I do today, every day. This episode of U-Turn is sponsored by Electric Pulp. Electric Pulp is a full-service digital agency specializing in smart, modern solutions for web and mobile. Founded in 1996, Electric Pulp has deep technical roots in business solutions and e-commerce and works with a wide range of clients, including well-known brands like Ford, O'Neill, and HP. Electric Pulp works on projects of all shapes and sizes and can handle strategy, design, development, search and analytics, social and email, as well as ongoing support for your company's next project. To get started, visit them at electricpulp.com or send them a note at hello at electricpulp.com. Thanks to Electric Pulp for sponsoring U-Turn. And so you guys were then starting to tour around this time, I'm guessing, because you signed to Electra. And you, or did you go into the studio right away? Yeah, we went into the studio, um, pretty quick. I think, I don't remember exactly when we got signed, but we started, we started recording pretty fast. There was, you know, like the process of, we were super obsessed with, with producers. That was like our big thing at that time was like, now that we're on this label and we have a good budget, like what, who are we going to get? Like we can get anybody. So we started meeting with all these really incredible producers that we were you know, idolizing, which is kind of weird to think of 19 year old kids, like idolizing producers. Yeah. Not too common. I don't think. And engineers and stuff, but we were very into that super early on with that. I was just from just listening to records and stuff and realize, Oh, I like, I like what, what's going on there. Yeah. Like you just love this drum sound or like, even like we would obsess about like snare sounds and like just the dumbest stuff that, (laughs) but still, I mean, we still do like we both still do. It's pretty ridiculous, but um, nitpicking on like the tiniest things. We refused to allow ride symbols and songs for a lot of, a lot of years. Really, <laughs> That's an interesting random like, detail. Yeah. It's like, this guy doesn't use ride symbols and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, we were really intrigued with how things were produced and records were made. And we wanted to just go spend like a ton of time making an album. Cause it was, anything we'd ever done before, it was always like, you give the guys 300 bucks and you're like in and out as fast as possible. So he can get that screamo band in, you know, they're like knocking on the door. <laughs> right. So we were just like in heaven to go work on a wreck. I think we were in California for like three months doing it. Um, 
but it, it, the reason it really took so long is just because we we didn't even really have all the songs ready yet. They're just like go in the studio and like just figure it out, you know, like go. So we ended up. So the label was okay with that. They encouraged you to basically go spend their money doing this. Yeah, I mean, we had a pretty good budget. So and we we went with this guy that, um, surprisingly, because since we probably could have gone with some, I mean, we definitely could have gone with a couple bigger people, but there's this guy Walt Vincent that we just really loved because he had done the Pete Yorn album, the first Pete Yorn album. And we just thought it sounded so great. And after a lot of deliberation between all these different producers, we, we were at a hotel somewhere in um, LA and we just listened to the record like a ton, stayed up really late, read all the liner notes, like everything we could have, you know, just super dissecting the record. And we're just like, that's it. We're going with him. So we went with him and he was significantly cheaper. And we recorded, you know, we, most of it, we didn't even really record in a real studio. It was like in a guest house in this guy's backyard um, that he was friends with, who just had a studio in his, built like a studio in his backyard. So it was really great. Cause it wasn't, it wasn't very intimidating. Cause it was, it was still sort of that, like, you know, small group of people, that we were used to. It wasn't in some, we did some massive kind of fancy LA studio stuff for like strings and, and uh, we did uh, Josh freeze. Was that, <laughs> yeah, we did that. That was, that was awesome doing the, yeah, we did like a, all the Josh free stuff at Capitol records, which and, probably was pretty thrilling. I mean, I'm sure you guys knew who Josh freeze was and, Oh my God. Yeah. We loved, like we were huge Vandals fans. And so that was, I mean, he was, we were probably annoying him so much, but he's like the nicest person on the planet. But yeah, I remember Nate uh, saying something about that. Cause I think I asked him when I met you guys, you know, years and years ago about, about what that experience was like. And he said, yeah, he came in, listened to the song once, did it. And then said, I like your tune or something like that. I just, I don't know if that's exactly. Yeah. Or and, not, yeah but. And he had a, he had a broken hand or something. I, and he was also smoking the whole time while he was drumming. So that was like, I was just in the room taking pictures of him, like an annoying tourist or something. And, uh, just being totally, totally fascinated that he, <laughs> yeah, he is just such a pro. He just like walked in, did it, broken hand, cigarette dangling from his mouth. And then he left and that was it. And it sounds awesome. I mean, I, I think that's a huge part of, of the lead into the record with those first two tracks being his drumming. Like it just really propels everything forward. I think, um, yeah, I mean, he's so good and he's just like, he's just such a pro. It's crazy. It's pretty awesome. So you guys get to spend three months in the studio. You record this album and, uh, yeah, we, go ahead. Yeah. I was, yeah, I think I was just remembering like halfway through it. They're like, we have this tour that we want you guys to go do. It's like a Warner brothers television network tour, like a college tour. And it was with this band called social burn. And so that was like the, that was our first tour we had. It was like two months into the, re- the record. They're like, just take a break go do this tour. It's like three or four weeks or whatever. And then come back and we're like, we don't have a band. So we called our friends, Marco and Mike who were in, you know, various stages of the bands before with us. And then we had just like set this cheesy LA talent scout guy set up like auditions for a drummer and a bass player. Cause we didn't have either of those. And so in the middle of recording this album, it was like the, you know, that was like kind of the first red flag. It's like right in the middle of doing this creative thing. 
you guys have to create a band, like find, you know, create a band, figure out how to play these songs that aren't even done being recorded yet. And, uh, and go tour for four weeks. So we did that. And, um, we found this guy, Charlie to play drums. And then we found, we went through a ton of bass players and everybody was so bad. Everybody had like a seven string woodstained bass. And then, this guy Don shows up and he's just like all frazzled and just kind of looks like one of us. And, uh, we just, he was just perfect. We're just like, you're it. Like we got you before you even start playing. We're just like, this dude is totally perfect. And he ended up being in the format forever. And he plays on all my stuff too, still. So that ended up actually being really great, even though it was kind of a cheesy experience to go through those auditions, but yeah. Another random got, experience too. Where you- It was. And he just, he had just moved there like that week from Boston and we knew a ton of the same people, like our booking agent he grew up with. And so it's, it, yeah, just all these really weird tiny world situations that were occurring throughout. So um, you, you go out on your first tour with these guys who basically you're just kind of throwing together, you know, kind of, yeah, we were, yeah, we were terrible and the tour was terrible. It was like really lame, really. It was like, uh, that, that network had a bunch of big shows at the time. It was, you know, like seventh heaven. Oh yeah, sure. It was like that era of stuff, like super family television programming. Um, so that was the big thing. It was like the WB tour. So we would, every show there was like a person, there was like a, there was a host like a MC of the night. Oh really? That, it would come out on stage and <laughs> yeah. And then there was an actor from one of their shows would come out and be like, Hey, I'm Ashley Simpson, which <laughs> Ashley Simpson was one of them. Like I'm no Ashley way. Simpson from whatever. I think she was maybe on seventh heaven or yeah, one she was. Shows. I'm almost yeah. positive. She was. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, this is uh Beverly Mitchell from seven, also most, from seventh heaven. Yes. It was all seventh heaven people. <laughs> well, you had a lot of people, so it makes sense for this tour. Is yeah, keep bringing out a new, uh, a new cast yeah, member. Yeah, it was like they'd go, they'd be on it for like a few nights, and then you'd get a new cast member. Um, but it was just so dumb. Like the whole thing was so stupid and a total failure. And then we just came back and finished the record. <laughs> was it weird to have to hop into the studio again, and or or did being on the road and playing some of the songs did that help you kind of uh, tie down the arrangements and finish what it, needed to be finished? Yeah, it probably helped a little bit just to get, you know, make it a little bit more real because it did seem like it was like this weird whirlwind of of uh, things. That, I mean, everything had happened so fast. Um, that was a, probably just a good way to put the brakes on it for a second and realize what, you know, it's like we had just been signed to one of what we thought was one of the coolest labels ever with these bands that we loved. Like we loved Third Eye Blind. As I said, like, that's what started us, you know, writing. That was one of the reasons we started writing together is because we love the album blue. Um, yeah, that's a great record. Totally underappreciated too. Cause everybody's yeah. all about the, the self-titled one, but yeah. And I feel like that, I, I feel like that album's starting to make a weird little comeback in, into people's minds. Like I, I definitely have noticed cause in the warehouse, the hello merch, I have a lot of younger kids that work in the back and they, I've been noticing like a lot of stuff from blue playing over the <laughs> really yeah, on the playlist. Like they're dropping some blue on the playlist and I'm getting pretty pumped about it. Cause I feel like it's yeah. Like third eye blinds kind of getting cool again. I think like I've, I've noticed on some 
cooler music sites. They're talking about them again. And yeah, I don't know. I feel like they're getting this little resurgence. I actually just saw them this summer. Uh, they were on a tour with Dashboard Confessional and they did an, an out, outdoor show here in Minneapolis. Yeah. I mean, that's like kind of a prime example of like them touring with Dashboard Confessional is kind of a, you know, I don't, I mean, I don't, is Dashboard Confessional cool anymore? I'm not sure, but he was, you know, that. Yeah. Oh, totally. When before it's like they were touring with, you know, some, you know, like Eve six or something. Right. Now, kind of a package tour from the nineties. And now, yeah, 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 you're right. Now they're, they're totally kind of like the indie rock world or something. But yeah. So, so this is why you got one of the reasons anyway, you guys ended up on Electra is this third eye blind connection. And yeah, so, so we thought we were, you, we know, we had this like big record budget and we were meeting with all these people and all these cool things were happening. And then we go out on that tour and there's like, nobody knows who we are, obviously. So that was really eye opening. Like, Oh, this is really, this is the real world. It's not like, it's not having this major label front, everything back at this, this fun, magical place in LA where you're spending all this time. It's like, this is what it's going to actually be like. And this was your first time actually being on tour, right? It was our second time we did a, a yeah. I mean, it was definitely our first real structured tour. We had done a very thrown together, weird tour with Midtown and the stereo. Oh, back. right. Sorry. I, yeah, you mentioned that earlier. Yeah. But, but, but before that, no, that was, that was really it. How did you feel actually being out on tour? Is it something you felt like you could handle and you could like, or was it pretty quickly something you realized is incredibly draining and tiring and all the things you said? No, before? no, it was, and still is. I mean, it has its moments, but touring is super fun. Like there's not the only time that I really started to, to get bummed on touring. Cause I really, you know, just like my dad, like I love driving. I, I stay up super late. I love just like listening to music and driving and talking and hanging out with friends and stuff. So the, that part of it was really great. Um, and then as we, and I, I never hated it. I always, I never actually never got tired of it, of that part of it. Then when we started getting bigger and touring and buses and things like that, that's when it gets a little weird and it, and on some levels there's obviously some comfort that you get with that. It's like you have, you're not having to drive, you know, someone's driving you around in this big box. Um, but yeah. I suppose it's more of like a teleport then like you just show up in cities yeah, and there's no really, sense of having gotten there. There's not a no, really. Yeah. It is really bizarre. You just kind of feel like you're stuck. And like, like when you have those dreams where you're running, but you're not getting anywhere. Right. <laughs> it's kind of like that. It's like, you just, go play a show and then you go back to the, bu the bus and you know, you can't really go anywhere and there's not always things within walking distance. Cause you know, the, you're on some big support tour and it's in an arena and there's nothing around you. Um, so yeah, that, that's when it started to get kind of lame to me. And I think everybody, I think we were actually even moving towards like towards the end of the band, our next tour, we were contemplating like, you know, these buses are so expensive every tour, if we just bought like a couple sprinters or something and trailers and, you know, it would probably be about the same after a couple tours and then we could drive again and it'll be fun. We hang out again and do all that stuff. But that never, ne that never ended up happening, but I was pushing pretty hard for getting back in the van, even though the bus is nice. You can't complain. Too yeah. Much. But th that makes sense. I get what you're saying, especially if you like to drive and you like that feeling of being on the I road just, and yeah, it just disconnects you a little bit with everybody. Yeah. Just to, to some degree because you know you can just go hide in your in your bunk. 
So I, that's actually when I saw you guys for the first time was the tour. I think that would have probably followed the one you were talking about after you finished the record. It was uh, the fall of 2003 and yeah. it was in, uh, the university of Minnesota in the basement of this thing called the hole, I guess is what it was called. And you guys were touring with the RX bandits. Oh yeah. And you, you opened for them and my friends and I were all just blown away and we thought you guys sound great. And it's just, there was something about it right away. I think even just the first single, it's that initial snare kick. It just, it just grabs you. It grabbed us. And so you guys then, I think that tour went on for a little while, but the album wasn't out yet. So you guys were kind of building up maybe a little bit of a buzz or something at that point. Yeah. I mean, we, we started working with this guy, Matt Galley, um, pretty quick. We had, we had the cool agent at first when we first got signed, we were like, we want Wilco's agent. Cause we started getting into Wilco and, uh, like the eels and those bands. It's like, we want to, we want that guy. And it was this guy who was kind of like an older dude. You know, he booked like the, the cooler bands from the nineties or just that, that realm, you know, that, that kind of, I don't know music that would appeal to people in their thirties, like music I like now. Um, and that dude just like could not get us a tour. We would just be like, Hey, we're ready. Like we, our record's done. We want to go. And he couldn't get us anything. He'd just be like, Oh, there's nothing. Sorry. Or he'd book us a 21 and over show somewhere. And we'd be like, uh, this sucks. Like we definitely appeal to a younger crowd. We're not like the drinking band. Um, so we got, hooked up with this guy, Matt Galley, who I had known and our, our manager at the time knew from doing the concert promotion stuff in Phoenix. And he was the one that ended up actually being friends with Don. And so it just worked out. It was really great. And he right out of the gate, he got us a tour with Piebald and Ozma and then a tour with the Arx Bandits. And he was booking all those bands. And so he was just throwing us on, on all of those. Wow. So there was even a tour then in between. That's crazy. So you guys yeah. were busy. Yeah, he was just throwing us on, on everything he could. He'd just be like, "Hey guys, you got to take this new band out. They're great." And which um, what you need to do, you got to build that word of mouth. I mean, that's totally what happened with my friends and I. It's like you know, we showed up at the show not expecting to see anything but the RX Bandits, and we saw you guys. And- yeah, which is funny. I was just talking to my friend who's in a band here called Roar, and he hasn't done much touring. And I was I was telling him about that. I was, and I actually brought up the RX Bandits. I use them as reference, which is really funny that we're talking about that now, but I was like, you know, sometimes you have to do these support tours that you think don't necessarily make sense. Like we went on to, we knew the RX bandits. We had played shows with them all the way back, like never going to score days. Actually, I think our first show ever was with the RX bandits and the hippos and like link 80. Oh, I love the hippos. And isn't it hilarious by the way that Ariel is now this huge producer like, yeah. And I just, found that, I just found that out like a couple months ago and it blew my mind. I, I had no idea. He's like quoted in, you know, rolling stuff, like everything online. And they're always talking about big name producer. So-and-so Ariel Reich said, I'm like, wait a minute, he was in the hippos. And I'm like, yes, he totally was. And they were yeah, awesome. That's insane. Like I went back and looked at his, um, yeah, like his credits after I found out he was working with yeah, it's not like Lady Gaga or something. And I was like, what? Yeah. And well, <laughs> it makes sense. I mean, the hippos wrote some great songs. Like oh, yeah, there they, was a dude, lot there. Dude, they were awesome. They're such nice people too. But, but yeah, so, but that's the thing. It's like when we were the format, you wouldn't necessarily, necessarily think that that would really work with a band like the RX bandits. If you were in the format at that time, but we didn't care. And we knew that they were good people and they were, you know, people just loved 
music and people that went to their shows just really love music as we did when we would go see them play years before that. So, um, but you know, I have, I know some people definitely that wouldn't do tours like that and that's totally fine, but it, but it just, it's just such a crucial thing. Like you, you really have to, and that was my point when I was talking to him is like, you just really, you know, it's like you go with piebald and then you go with our expanded and then you go with motion city soundtrack and then yellow card and something corporate. And maybe all of those don't necessarily make sense at the time. But after like a couple years of that, when you go, when you go back and you do your headlining show, you know, at uh, Prince's venue in Minneapolis, wherever that, whatever that was called. The quest. The quest. Yes. And like, which is now defunct, unfortunately, but yeah. And it's like, and now the shows and now you're doing a good show there, maybe, you know, and and it's because of all that support. And it's, that was really the thing is that I said, like people walk in there to see the Arx bandits and they see you and it's a totally organic thing. And it makes you a fan because you discovered them. It wasn't pushed on you really. You know, it's like it was to, to some degree because they were, put as an opener, but, but, you know, you could have just blown us off, but you didn't. Cause it was just something that was special to you at that time. And that's, that's how, that's how you discover good music. Like that's, that's totally how, how we felt. My, my friends and I all just were like, we were so excited about it because it was such a fun surprise. Yeah. It really and, that's, was. and that's how I was when I grew up too. Like that's all of us just constantly going to shows and being just so pumped about where like when you would find a good band that it was like winning the lottery it's like dude i didn't even i went to see this good band and i found another one it's like twice as great so did you realize that even back then because you said you were just talking to your friend recently but did you realize or did the rest of the band realize the necessity of doing the support tours like that and how you build a fan base even at that young age yeah we did we wanted it i mean we just knew um that that's how it had to be done so that's why we just we're just touring so relentlessly for all those years because it was really important and we love, and we did love doing it a lot. So on top of the fact that we were just having a ton of fun primarily and, and not only just knowing it, but, but just seeing it, you know, in between all those support tours, we would maybe go do a little headlining run just to see, you know, you kind of want to check every once in a while and see like, is this working? Um, and it, and it was like every time we, we would do that, we would see the growth and we would do the support tours and we would see more people start to come out in not only just buying CDs because they just found us, but now they're buying shirts. And that's when you really start to know it's like, these people are, these people are actually fans. They didn't just discover you. They're here to see you too. And you're, you have value on this bill, you know, and you start, you go from like the fourth slot to the direct support and stuff like that. So sure. Yeah, we knew for sure. That's, that's impressive. Cause I don't know that a lot of young bands realize that. I mean, I think they maybe want it to happen faster, but like you said, you, you're basically creating customers. You're creating customers potentially for years and years and years by playing these shows and well, maybe I, you don't always see it, but yeah. And I think too, on some level, we even felt kind of guilty for the band happening as quick as it did because we were so into even though we were the furthest thing from punk rock, it's like, we were into that style, you know, that, that kind like, of DIY thing and like pay your yeah, dues, that type yeah, of thing. I mean, yeah. And we wanted, we wanted to pay our dues. Like we definitely wanted to, to do all that stuff. And so, so even though you were on a major label and everything, you're still trying to build the support organically. Yeah. And we quick, I mean, the major label thing just, 
it just, I mean, we immediately learned after the record was done that like we were going to be during, during the record, it was actually kind of obnoxious with the label. It just, it has the, the crumbling of that relationship started happening really quick. And so that was the other thing too, it's just the sense of urgency. Like we need to ride this out as long as we can. Because it might end at any second. <laughs> Cause it literally could end at any second. Like we're not, we did, we, the vibe with the label just did not get off to a good start, you know, halfway through the record, it started getting weird. And so the record was released, I think it was October, which I remember you were talking about vividly remembering certain things. Like I, my friends and I went to Best Buy to buy it. There were like four copies there and I think we bought all of them. Um, and this was like in October, 2003. That's awesome. It was, it was pretty exciting because we were really excited the show to buy something. And all you guys had was the EP because the record wasn't out yet. And so you guys released this album and I mean, obviously I'm a fan of format, you know, anybody who knows me knows that, but that was a great record. Like that record could have, I think spawned like four radio singles, but it didn't. Yeah. Well, there's a whole thing, you know, it's like they released it in the fourth quarter, which is not, that's kind of like a music business. No, no. If you're a, a band that no one's ever heard of, but they were really excited to get it out quick. We had a lot of, you know, some buzz happening sort of. So I think they thought if we just get it out quick, that's going to be the best move. And it ended up not being the best move. <laughs> it, was, it was a bad move. Um, and then they were just going through, I mean, people just started getting fired. And then by like 2005, you know, the label was done. I mean, it, maybe even before that, I, I don't remember exactly when electric folded. It's like 2004, probably. Yeah. Something like that. I think you're right. And then we got, somehow we didn't get dropped. We got just moved over to Atlantic, which was weird to us because all of a sudden it was like, well, all those people are gone. These are all new people. We got, a, we got two new A&R people at Atlantic who actually ended up being incredibly nice and, and awesome. But, and they tried, like they definitely tried to keep things going. It, the higher up people at Atlantic didn't want anything to do with it. So we did, we ultimately ended up getting dropped, which we, by that time we really wanted, like that was exactly what we wanted. So were you frustrated about what happened with interventions or had you mostly moved past it? No, we didn't really care. I, I don't think because we were just, we were doing good. Like we were doing really good on the road. And that was like, that was our thing. That was something they had nothing sure. to do with. And there were, you know, there weren't 360 deals back then. So they weren't touching any, right. any of that at all. That's what's so, so that, interesting. I mean, cause you guys, like you said, you're basically paying your dues and building this thing organically, but behind, or you've got this major label that still releases this album and everything, but it's almost like it was happening separately from what you were doing on the road is what it sounds like. Yeah. You're because that's, that's really all they did. I mean, they just, they put it out and that was it. We didn't make a video. There wasn't any radios. They, they just gave up, like they just put it out, which you know, we were just like, we could have done that. <laughs> we can't do anything. Right. Um, so we just, I think we did at some point we just stopped talking, like completely just stopped talking to him and they're like, okay, well, we're going to go do our thing. You guys have a nice day. And that's what we did. We don't, I don't, I honestly don't even remember talking to anybody after the record came out. I think it was just, we were in our, in a totally different planet than they were at that point. Really weird. But like you said, you got dropped. And yeah. then from what I've, I think I've read that they basically paid you to leave. 
Yeah. Well, that's, that's what, that was the brilliance of like getting smart people in, you know, in early on getting that lawyer, Brian, who's like the best guy ever. He's actually written a book about music business. He's that smart. Oh, really? Um, Do you know what the book's called? We can plug that here. I don't even think it's in print anymore. I don't, I don't remember what it's called. Oh, okay. It has like a cool, like cartoon, like hand-drawn cover, but. So I, he made sure this was a clause in the contract then? Yeah. He had this thing where we had like a two album deal and if they guaranteed, and if they didn't, if they didn't pick up the second record by a certain date, then they, they would have to buy us out of the option. And so that's probably part of the reason too, why we just kind of kept quiet and laid low. They, they didn't pick up that option. And immediately we were just like, okay, <laughs> guys didn't take it. So I guess that means this isn't happening anymore. Thank you. We'll take that check and we'll go make our new record. But we actually I should go back a little bit. We, we were trying to, I guess we did sort of start feeling out some producers and stuff before, and we did do some demos and we had this, kind of crazy writing session with Linda Perry um, from Four Non Blondes. <laughs> you know right. I mean? Who's also co-written some stuff for, you know, various pop people. And Yeah. And she was friends with, with our A&R woman, Mary. So she hooked us up with her. We met her at, um, we did this weird Yahoo thing at Sundance Film Festival, like an outdoor show at dusk, like in January in Utah. Um, it was freezing. But we ended up going to dinner with her and Linda Perry that night. And she was really cool. So we hung out with her in LA and did a song with her. But, um, so we, we did, we were sort of starting the process. And I think what really killed it and why they didn't take the option is just when we started giving them these early demos of what became dog problems, they were just sort of like, what is this? I don't know. This is not, <laughs> this isn't right. So they just were not feeling it. And Mary there, who was our our girl, she was really trying hard, but they just weren't having it and we didn't care. So, um, we exercised, you know, as soon as they didn't exercise their option, we exercised our buyout and just said, we're going to just go do it ourselves then, um, with your money. Thank you. <laughs> so that, that end actually ended up working out really well for you guys. And, oh yeah, it was the best. And it seems like this is maybe when you really start to get into doing a lot more of the DIY stuff maybe, or putting to work some of the things that you've been picking up along the way. Cause you don't have a label anymore and you'd already been, it sounds like pretty self-sufficient on the road. So you guys then record dog problems pretty much right away. Or are you still touring at that point? Yeah. I mean, we toured all the way up until, you know, 2000 end of 2005. And I think that's when we started recording dog problems. This was around October and November, 2005, I think. Um, yeah, so pretty much, pretty much right away. Cause we, we were ready and we were definitely ready. Cause we, like I said, I think we had, we had some demos at that point. We had started to contact some people. Um, and I think we had even talked to Steve McDonald who ended up doing the record before we even got dropped. And so I think right after we got dropped, we were like, Hey, we have a budget. It's not a major label. Cause it, you know, we had our record budget would have been much bigger if they hadn't have dropped us, but, um, he was still willing to do it for much less. That's and, awesome. Uh, that worked out. <laughs> yeah, it totally worked out. So yeah, I think we, we kind of started right away and that, that was another record where it just, it took so long cause we didn't realize what we were 
we didn't hundred percent realize what we were getting into. We knew it was going to be like a bigger thing and there's going to be more production, but I don't think we knew it was going to take three months again to do it. Was it because you didn't realize what the songs would require in terms of scope or? Yeah, that we were super into the production even more than ever on that. So, I mean, to set up, we were getting like different drum sounds for every song. It would take, you know, I don't know. Things were, things were taking way longer than they normally would. Like we would spend, there's a lot of, uh, tempo changes on that record and a lot of just really meticulous thought out little quirky things that just were taking forever. So, and you didn't have a label, you know, over your shoulders saying, well, we don't really like tempo changes or anything like that. No. And we could, I mean, we could do whatever we want and we certainly did for sure. And did you feel a sense of freedom then to be labelless at that point? Oh yeah. 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 We loved it. I mean, it, we, again, it was just another lucky break for us to be off that label, just to be able to do, make the, make the record we really wanted to with no, with no one telling us like, you can't have clarinets in this song. It's weird. Right. Right. Like, yes, we can. But with their money, which is just so delicious. I just oh, I love that. It was, yeah, it was like the best. It was that I've never been more satisfied just, yeah, just the fact that they pay for that record is like one of my favorite things ever. And it's another great record. Again, obviously I'm a fan, but it, it turned out awesome, I think. And the production Thanks. really shows, and it doesn't sound like it cost less than, you know, the, the interventions record. Like it, there's a lot going on and it's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Steve was kind of a miracle worker on that. He hooked us up with some, he used a lot of his, his uh, connections and help to get us some really high budget people for low budget pricing. So you make the record and then you go out and support it again, multiple tours, I think. Right. Yeah. After, after dog problems, that was the, that was the most touring that we did until the band. Was, I mean, we just, we toured until the band was done. That was it. It was non nonstop. Do you feel like by the end you were getting burnt out on touring? I know you said you liked it, but I think in the midst of all this, you got married, right? Like that. Yeah, I got married. Yeah, I got married at the end of 2004. So it was, it was still, it was pretty early on. Um, so by that, by 2008, I mean, I got married, you know, I was on a support tour with Switchfoot and I drove home, I, you know, the bus dropped me off and I got married the next day. So it was like <laughs> that kind of a thing. So wow. we were, we were used to it. So it wasn't, that wasn't really that big of a deal. Um, cause she, my wife, Anita would come out on the road for a couple of weeks at a time and stuff. And everybody, we were all friends and I actually met Anita through Nate. So, and everyone, Oh, everyone, okay. Nice. Everyone knew her. So it wasn't like, Oh, this girl, I mean, maybe it was a little bit sometimes, but not really. Cause everybody loves her, you know? So, but anytime anyone new comes on the bus, even if it's someone that, you know, it still sort of changes the, the vibe. Um, so that, that was starting to happen a lot. Even, you know, everybody had girlfriends, so the bus scene was like getting really crowded, which was cool. Cause we all knew each other, but we, we just were losing that. We were losing that base, you know, that base of that group core group thing that happened in the van, like originated in the van. Sure. So that, that bond. That, yeah. So that was really, that was really the only thing that was bothering me as far with touring was just, everybody was just starting to get so separated and I just didn't feel like we 
we're as close there, you know? Sure. It was kind of a bummer because I, I really kind of cherished all those moments in the van. I know it's probably definitely like you said, as the tours get bigger and things are more expensive, it just kind of naturally happens. But I also wonder, is it partially just people getting a little bit older and kind of getting into a later stage in life where some people maybe want a little more independence? Yeah. I mean, I'm just making things up. Like it might not be true at all, but it just seems like it could be natural I mean, I as you're getting more to your later twenties. Yeah, no, I think it's a lot of stuff. I mean, it's, you do also, even though you may totally love the person, you spend that much time with anybody. Oh yeah, definitely. You just like really start to get sick of them, you know? So yeah, you do have to do that to some degree. Um, for a while you have, you know, there were the times where somebody would rent a car and branch off with a couple people, you know, Nate and I would go branch off with Anita and Nate's girlfriend and we would just do our own thing for a few days just to get out of there. And other people did that too. Um, sure. So it helps so keep you sane a little bit. Kind of a necessity, but it does, I mean, it really does break that bond a little bit and you start to get kind of like, oh, is he too cool to be on the bus with us? Sure. Or it's, kind it's, of a thing. it's childish, but it's hard not to be that way probably again when you're around people all yeah, the time. Yeah, because you're just kind of temperamental and then just, plus just, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's not all fun and games on the road. It's definitely, yeah, it, it is tiring. It is just kind of, it's boring really. I mean, for us, cause we're not we weren't like party people. So it was pretty boring. And we would just go, the show would be done and we'd go back in the bus and we'd just kind of sit around and talk. And that was it. You know, I think that's something a lot of people don't think about is that you're playing what, maybe an hour, hour 15 or something a day. Yeah. On a bus, there's just like so much sitting around. Like you just wake up and I, on the bus towards the later days of the band, I was started staying up really super late because everyone would go to sleep. So I would stay up really late to have some actual alone time, you know, to just like process my thoughts in the back lounge without 10 people back there smoking or something. And, uh, I would sleep until like, I would stay up so late or early into the morning that I would sleep until like two or three so that I wouldn't have to try to fill my day with nothing. <laughs> In a location where there's nothing to do, like you said, yeah, because it was so depressing. So, but it ended up being kind of depressing to sleep like that too. <laughs> but, yeah. but that was sort of, that was the thing. It's just like, yeah, it's just weird because you couldn't. There's not. There's so much sitting and waiting around when you're on a when you're in a bus and you're on those tours. It just is crazy. Would you describe yourself as an introvert? Yeah, in a lot of ways, for sure. So that I think I could see how parts of touring would get would get tiring when it comes to that. Like you said, you need to wall yourself off or stay up late or just find some way to get alone time because you're not going to get it. Otherwise that makes a lot of sense. It's just, yeah, I don't know. And I don't even think it's that necessarily is, or maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, I still do this now, you know, like I, that's kind of my, my time is I just, I still stay up really late and I don't know what it is. I just feel like it's a good decompression moment to be able to know that everyone's sleeping nothing's going to happen. You can just sit here and do whatever, you know, play guitar or even just like watch TV or something, but just to know that there's very, very rarely in my day is there nothing to do these days. And those, and then too, you know, all kind of always really. That concludes part one of my conversation with Sam means of the band, the format and the company, hello merch. Listen to part two to find out how Sam got hello merch off the ground and kept it growing over the past seven years. 
We also talk about his clothing line, Hello Apparel, his upcoming solo album, and the general state of the music industry in 2015. I think you'll enjoy it. Also, thanks again to Electric Pulp for sponsoring this episode of U-Turn. Visit them on the web at electricpulp.com or send them a note at hello at electricpulp.com to get started on your company's next project. Thanks again.